Good morning. Welcome to Longview Point. My name is Stephen Carson. I'm the missions pastor here at Longview Point. And uh, before we go into the sermon this morning, I wanted to uh, let y'all know of an upcoming move my family and I are making. Uh, some of you may know, some of you may not. In January, my, wa- uh, my wife, kids, were headed up to, to Belfouche, South Dakota. And that may sound familiar because if you've been watching the news, they just had five feet of snow. That's, that's where we're headed. And that's an unusual thing, though. They, uh, a lot of the, we were talking to Jason and Beth Ford who were there, and they said that uh, they've been talking to some of the lifelong residents. They've never seen anything like this in October. So very unusual. They actually had a, had a snow day. They got out of school the other day, which rarely happens up there, apparently. Oddly enough, they get out up there more often if it's too hot. So it's kind of the opposite of here. If they have a day that's too hot, their schools don't have air conditioning, they, they get out for hot days rather than snow days. So for them to get a snow day is unusual. But we're headed up there in January. And Ashton, I don't think this has been announced to the church yet, but Ashton, who led worship this morning, is uh, going to move up there as well in January. Ashton is a college student, and uh, he'll enroll in Black Hills State University in Spearfish, and he'll lead worship at our church, which is a great answer to prayer because currently there was not a worship pastor. So Ashton was an answer to prayer. Uh, I mentioned it to him about two months ago, and he called me back that night and said, I'm going with you. So that's really neat. We're excited about that. And uh, just uh, looking forward to our move. We're obviously moving to South Dakota at the optimal time in January. It's when we're headed to South Dakota, so it's going to be a little cold. It's kind of funny. We Five years ago, we were in Africa as missionaries, one of the hottest places on earth. And now we're headed to South Dakota, one of the coldest places in the U.S. So, But we're excited, looking forward to it. I want to ask you all, this morning to pray for us, to commit to pray for us as we are uh, in the process of moving. One praise, we were able to get a contract on our home about a week ago, so we are, uh, we'll close October 20th or so, and that's a huge burden off our shoulders, just getting that house out of the way and sold, uh, but, but we have a lot to do between now and January, a lot of logistical items, a lot of stuff to fill out, and for, for North American Mission Board, who will be partially working for uh, we are going to have to raise our own finances to head up there. It's a smaller church. The church started uh, Easter Sunday of this year. And uh, the pastor from the church that started it in Spearfish named Doug Hickson, he's been going up there on Sunday nights and leading a service. So they've not had a Sunday morning type format yet. And so uh, we'll be, when we move there in January, we'll transition into that role. Uh, but again, 20, 25 folks, we're going to have to raise our, our finances to get there. It's definitely been a faith stretcher. God is providing, but we would ask you just to pray for us in that sense, for sure, as we get ready to go. Uh, pray that we'll find a home. It's hard to find a home when we're here trying to look there. We're, just pray that God would orchestrate all of those uh, events. Pray for our families as we're leaving. When we went to Uganda in 2007, it was just Kay and I, and that was hard on our families, but it was, uh, we were there two-year commitment. Our folks knew how long we were going to be gone. This is more indefinite, and this time there are grandchildren involved, and so it's harder this time. And I just ask you to pray for our families, pray for us as we head out. And then finally, pray for the church there. It's Connection Church in Belfouche. Uh, if any of you have ever seen the old Western, The Cowboys, with John Wayne, any of you ever seen that? All right, that's where they're driving cattle to. If you ever heard of Belfouche, they're driving cattle to Belfouche and that. That's kind of its claim to fame. Uh, but that's, just pray for that church there. It's, uh, the, the area we're going to, the town we're going to, is about 6,000 folks, and it is estimated that 85 to 90% of people right now are not in church there. So it's, it's unreached in a sense. I mean, maybe 10% of the people there worship somewhere, and that may not even be at a good church, at a Bible-believing church. But, but So it's, it's an area of great need. Pray for us as we go there. And I, and I really ask you to do that, to commit to pray for us. We need, we need your prayers. 
Pray for uh, Brother Wade and Joey this morning. Ashton mentioned earlier they're in Henderson, Tennessee. And uh, Wade is preaching the revival. Joey is leading the worship. So pray for them. And they'll be back, I think, toward the end of this week. And they uh, just pray for their safety as they're traveling to and uh, back and forth and, and for their time there. If you got your Bibles this morning, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I was telling someone in the earlier service, when I, in the 8 o'clock service, I got ready to read these verses in Philippians chapter 2, and for whatever reason, my eyes fell on Philippians chapter 3, and I was looking at the verses, waiting on everyone to get there, and I was looking at the verses, and I was thinking, these aren't the verses I'm supposed to be preaching on. I, I was thinking, am I in the wrong book? Or, you know, I just... For like five seconds, it was complete panic up here. No one noticed because they were looking for the passage in their Bible. But for about five, it's a lonely feeling when that happens because you're looking like, what, what am I going to do? You know, I, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I preached this uh, message about two months ago when we went to uh, Spearfish to preach, kind of in view of going up there, and I just wanted to share it with you this morning. I, uh, Doug, uh, Pastor Doug, preaches through books like Brother Wade does, and uh, this was where it came to when I was going up there, and so this is what I preached on. I just wanted to share it with you all this morning. So let's pray this morning before we get going. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for everyone who is here this morning. Father, I, it's not by chance they're here. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, I know you have something to say to all of us in this room. Uh, Lord, whenever we open up your word, you have something to say to us. And Father, I pray this morning you would speak to us. Lord, we are here to listen, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is salvation? This morning we're going to look at what it means to work out our salvation. But what is salvation? You know, there are many different views, many different ideas. If you were to go to Hernando Walmart in the Bible Belt, if you were to go to Hernando Walmart, and you were to poll 50 people, what does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? You would probably get double-digit answers. You would get probably the correct answer, surely the correct answer here in the Bible Bell, but you would also get salvation is, is being mostly good, doing good works, you're good outweighing your bad. You know, you'd probably get the answer of, as, as long as I'm better than my neighbor, I'm going to get in. You'd probably get the answer, as long as I believe in a God, whatever suits me, as long as I pick the God I want, as long as I believe in him, I'll, I'll get to the same place. If you go to India and you were to poll people, you'd get very different answers. You'd get multiple answers. If you were to go to Asia or Africa, you would, depending on the religion, you would get a, a multitude of answers as to how someone can be saved, as to how salvation happens. I think if you were to poll many people in our town who consider themselves Baptists, you, you might get different answers. There'd be some confusion, I would imagine. But let me tell you, first of all, and, I, and I've been thinking a lot about this whole concept, but, but let me tell you what I believe salvation is not, first of all. Salvation is not, and I, hear, I just think we have this view so many times, salvation is not about a good God dying for good people. That's not what salvation is about at all. A lot of people believe that. It's this concept of a good God in the sky who dies for good people here. But the reality is, that cheapens and that mocks the grace of God. Salvation is about the perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God sending His Son to die in the place of completely ruined, broken sinners. That's what salvation is. 
Salvation is not a good God dying for good people. Salvation is a perfectly holy, the perfectly holy righteous God dying in the place of people who are ruined and wrecked by sin with no hope. That's what salvation is. And I've heard people say before, well, man, that sure makes it sound like man is worthless. If you, you know, man is mostly good, right? Man is not mostly bad. And that's what people say. And they'll say, well, that gives you a, a low view of man. But listen, here's the truth. What does it say about man that God in his infinite holiness would send his son to die in the place of people who had made themselves enemies of God? That tells us something about the worth of man in the sight of God, that God would give his son to die for us. God is good. We were enemies of God. Romans 5 says that some would die for their friends, some might die for a good person, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's good. When Jesus died on the cross, the height of his holiness and the depth of our sinfulness were on full display. He died for us so that we might know him. Salvation is not about a good God redeeming good people. It's about a perfectly righteous God dying in the place of ruined people. That's what salvation is about. We had an unpayable debt that we could work a million lifetimes and never pay off. But God in his infinite love died in our place. Furthermore, salvation is not merely merely about avoiding hell. You ask people, why did Jesus die for you? Well, clearly it's so I don't go to hell. And that's certainly part of it. But salvation is about a whole lot more than that. So often we just make it into an afterlife thing. It's not about that. Christ, if you're a believer, Christ has saved you for the here and now too to use you so that you will know him and so that you will make him known wherever that may be, whether it's locally or around the world, to know him and to make him known. That's God's desire for our lives. Salvation is about a relationship that is ongoing and intimate with the personal, loving, forgiving God. And this morning, understanding the truth that, that God has, has, has sent his son to die in our place so that we might know him and so that we might make him known. Today, we're going to look a little bit more in depth about what salvation is. We're going to look at three truths from this passage. Those three truths are this. God uh, has called us to work out our salvation. This passage says here, he has called us to work out our salvation. Number two, he has called us to reverentially work out our salvation. And then number three, he has empowered us so that we might be able to work out our salvation. So let's look at this uh, passage this morning. Let's, Let's read these verses again. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here it is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. First of all, first thing I'll do is look back at at some of the previous verses. Look back at verse 3 and 4. Chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but but also for the interest of others. So in verses 3 and 4, we see a a plea for selflessness. The Apostle Paul calls on the church at Philippi. He says, says, you are to have the attitude, uh, a selfless attitude. You are to put the interest of others before your own interest. And then he tells us why in verse 5. Look what he says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he gives us our example. He says, be selfless people, and here's why you should be. Jesus is our example. Plea for selflessness. 
Christ is our example, and then he shows us the humility of Christ. Look at verses 6 through 8. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see the humility of Christ. And in that, verse 7, we see the incarnation of Christ. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. In the incarnation of Christ, we see the humility of Christ. It is an amazing thought that we so often just glaze over the fact that God came to earth in the form of man. We had one of our speakers at our Global Impact Conference talked about that, how extraordinary it is that God became a baby and dwelt among us, lived among us, did what we could not do, lived a perfect life, sinless life. Humility of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. And in verse 8, we see the grace of Christ. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See the grace of Christ. Died on a cross in our place for our sins. As a result of this, verse 9, we see the exaltation of Christ. Look at verse 9. For this reason, looking back to these things, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. See the exaltation of Christ, the name that is above every name, the name, the only name that salvation can come from, the name of Jesus Christ. Finally, we see the worthiness. Look at verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see the worthiness of Christ. Jesus Christ alone is the one to whom every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. As a result of this, when we look back at these few verses, verses 3 through 11, and we see the extraordinary, this extraordinary picture of Christ and what he has done in our place, what should our response be? Well, he tells us here, look at verse 12. So then, again, they're looking back to these verses, looking back to who Christ is, verse 12, so then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more my absence. Here it is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What should our response be to this great God in verses 3 through 11? Our response should be we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Number one, we are called to work out our salvation. Now, let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean we are to work for our salvation. I mean, it, it, it implies this clearly in this. We know that that's not what it's talking about, but furthermore, we know that God cannot lie, right? The Bible says God, God cannot, God does not lie. That's not in his nature to lie. He cannot lie. We also know that the word of God is inspired by God. It's his book. It's his words. He inspired it. So we know that God cannot lie. We know his word cannot lie. And then we look at a verse like Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that says, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of our works, so that no man may boast. Clearly, we see in Scripture that there is nothing we can do to get to God in our good works. The Bible is very clear about that. We're saved wholly by God's grace through faith in what Jesus did. That's how we come to know him. The verse is also not talking about the fact that once we're saved, we work to keep our salvation. If we couldn't earn our salvation, we can't keep it. It's God's grace that saves us. It's God's grace that keeps us. So what does it mean? If it doesn't mean we're to work for our salvation, what does it mean? Well, first of all, we have to understand 
I guess, kind of the three dimensions of salvation. First of all, there's justification. Justification is when we are granted pardon for our sin because of what Christ has done in our place. It's the idea of standing before a judge with an unpayable debt. And just before we are about to be punished for this, someone comes in and says, he cannot pay this debt, but I will pay it in his place. And they pay that penalty for us, and we're free to go. We have a sin debt that is unpayable, but Jesus paid it for us. That's the idea of justification. If we know him, he paid it. We know he died in our place on the cross for our sins. That's justification. Sanctification is the process whereby we are becoming more like Christ. If you're a believer today, sanctification is the idea that you're growing in him. You're growing to become more like him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, justification is a work for us. Sanctification is a work in us. It's a great way to look at it. Justification is a work for us. Sanctification is a work in us. And then finally, there is glorification. Glorification is when the believer comes into perfect conformity to Christ. This will not be achieved while we're in these bodies. It's when we go to be with him. So justification, sanctification, and glorification. This passage right here where he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's speaking of here sanctification. It's a process where we're being made more like Christ. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The word your there implies that they already were saved. He says it's your salvation. Work out your salvation. But now work on your sanctification. You are saved. It's your salvation that God has given you. Now you are to work on it. You are to work for your sanct- You are to work on your sanctification is what he's telling him here. The word for work out, where he says work out your sanctification. The word work out here is the Greek word that means continually work out. Ongoing. It is a command that has an ongoing emphasis. One man put it this way. It means to keep on working out into completion or finality. It's an ongoing work that we are to continually work on. You know, I think many people have a blissful idea of Christianity. We begin to follow Christ and everything is fine. Life is good. We'll have no difficulties. Life will not be hard. It will not be a struggle. But raise your hand if that's been your experience. Life is still hard, right? Just because we come to know Christ doesn't mean everything goes, all the problems go away. Life can still be difficult. Our kids are going to act bad at times. Mine more than others at some times. Our relationships are not always going to be easy. There's going to be difficulty sometimes. Life is not always, just because we know Christ doesn't mean everything is going to be fine and everything is going to be easy. You know, Christian life's a struggle day by day. Would you agree with that? We still have a nature that is pulling against us. We still have a, we, we still are prone to, to wonder. We're prone to sin. We have a nature that pulls against us. Christian life's a struggle day by day. A lot of times, you know, I kind of consider days kind of the, the, the spiritual mundane push-through days where you just struggle through those days. But here again, that's why the command here is ongoing. That's why the command is continual to work out our salvation because we have to continually strive to work out our salvation, to grow in our relationship with Christ. It's daily. It is walking with God even in the difficult times as well as the good times. You know, it's one thing to say what Jesus said, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, but it's an entirely different thing to do that, right? It's, it's one thing to, to put up a plaque on our home that says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, but it's an entirely different thing as men to lead our families that way. It's hard. It's difficult. Not easy. It's one thing to say in the midst of a difficult circumstance, I'm just going to have to trust God in this. It's a different thing to trust him. It's hard. 
sanctification. It's in the midst of those hard things saying, Lord, I need you. God, I need your grace in this area of my life. I need you to grow me. I need you to change me. Lord, I want to be like you. Help me through this situation. Do you know why you're married? You're married for sanctification. Well, I was married, uh, Kay and I were married 11 years ago. And um, I learned a lot about myself that first year in marriage. You know, people say first year of marriage is great. It's all, it wasn't for us. That was our hardest. It's gotten better every year since then. First year is hard. You have two people, different backgrounds, different personalities, different thought processes. She's organized. I'm disorganized. She's, you know, just all these different things. We were just button heads. It was hard. It wasn't easy. You know what I learned about myself that first year? I learned that I'm impatient. I always thought I was a patient person. And then you realize quickly, I'm an impatient person. I just, I just saw a wife look over at her husband kind of like. <laughs> I learned that I am, I get angry quickly sometimes. I struggle with that, outbursts of anger which is a fruit of the flesh. You know, I learned that my mouth moves a lot faster than my brain thinks sometimes. And I said hurtful things. I saw, I saw someone else look at their spouse just then. <laughs> Do you know why you have children? Sanctification. They're <laughs> striking some chords here with marriage and family, apparently. There's been times with my four-year-old that when a situation happened, I got done, and I was like, I just acted like a four-year-old. I just went down to his level in that situation. Sanctification, man, God just works in our lives. He teaches us things about ourselves. He chips away at us. You don't realize how many areas of your life are, are a struggle and the things that you struggle with until you, you know, marriage just brings that out. Children just brings that out. Now, we're, we're called to Bottom line, we're called to this, though. We're called to sanctification. We're called to grow in our relationship with him. We're called to work out our salvation. Furthermore, he says that working out our salvation is so important that we are to do so, he says here, with fear and trembling. Point number one, we're called to work out our salvation. Number two, we're called to reverentially work out our salvation. We're called to work it out with fear and trembling. And I think there are four reasons that we are called to reverentially work out our salvation. Number one is that same reason, just out of a reverential awe for who God is and what he has done for us. Verses 3 through 11 we looked at. Jesus Christ, the exalted one, the holy one, the one to whom every knee will bow, we are to have a sense of awe toward him. He is our creator. I mean, think about it. Just, it really blows your mind when you consider the fact that this earth wasn't here and God said be there and it was there. It blows, it blows your mind to think about the fact that the reason that we have breath this morning is because of God's grace. All he has to do is take his hand off of us, and we're going to fall over dead. It's his grace. He is the creator before. I mean, the Bible tells us that God knit us together in our mother's womb. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. That all of the days of our life were written down in a book before there was any of them. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. He is the life giver both physically and spiritually. We have life today physically because God gave it to us, and if you're saved, it's because God gave it to you. He's the life giver. He is the holy one. He is the one to whom every knee will bow, and as a result of that, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling out of a reverential awe for who God is. Number two, we're to work out our salvation reverentially because of our own deceitful hearts that are prone to temptation, prone to wander. Jeremiah 17 tells us that our hearts are deceitful and deceptive. Who can discern them? And our hearts will lead us astray. We need wisdom that's from above, 
in our lives. Number three, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we have an enemy that wants to destroy us. We have an enemy that wants to destroy us. You know, Satan's desire is death. God's desire is life. Satan's desire is to divide, divide families, break up families. God's desire is to unify and give purpose to families. Satan's desire is to destroy your children. Satan would love nothing more than for your children and grandchildren to live their lives in their sin and die and go to hell. It's his desire. You know, we have this view so many times that Satan is just this red devil with a pitchfork who's just kind of a little bit mischievous. He's a liar and he's a killer and he's a thief. Watching the news, Westgate Mall in Nairobi, Kenya, a few weeks back, they had a terrorist attack where there were innocent people shot down, about 70 people, grenades thrown. We actually had a family that came to our GIC last year who lives in Nairobi who were stuck in that mall for about five hours, hiding. They got out, thank the Lord, but 70 folks didn't. Many more injured. And you watch those news reports, and our initial thought is, boy, those guys were bad. That's true. They're sinners. But another thing we have to consider is this. Satan inspired them to do that. He's a killer. He's a thief. He's a destroyer. His desire is to destroy us. We have a thief. I mean, we have an enemy that is real. We're called to reverentially work out our salvation out of a sense of who God is, a reverential awe, because our hearts are deceptive, because we have an enemy that wants to destroy us. Finally, because our salvation is the most important thing in our lives. Walking with God, spending time with him, is the most important thing in our lives. It's the greatest thing we can do for our families. Greatest thing we can do for our children. To walk with God and to love him and to model that in front of them. It's hard to do. I struggle with that. So what does it mean to reverentially work out our salvation? Very simply, it just means to take our salvation seriously. To yield ourselves to Christ to grow in him, to know him. Because remember, his desire is for our good. Look what it says in verse 13. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His good pleasure and his purposes is also for our good. Do we believe God is a good God? Absolutely. If he's a good God, he wants what's best for us. And it tells us here what's best for us is to allow him to work in us for his good pleasure. When we walk with God, when we live our lives for him, when we yield ourselves to him, there's safety in that. There's joy in that. There's peace in that. There's life in that. And that's God's desire for us. So we are called to work out our salvation with a reverential heart. Called to work out our salvation, called to work it out reverentially. But what if we, if this verse just ended here, that would be pretty hopeless. If God just said, all right, work out your salvation, I'm gone, I'm out of here. Couldn't do it. Couldn't get our salvation that way. Couldn't work out our salvation that way, but it doesn't end here. Look at the next verse, verse 13. For, for it is God who is at work in you. God says, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and here's how you're going to do it. It's God that's at work in you. Here's what we do. We yield ourselves and let him work through us. It's what this passage is talking about here. It's God who is at work in you. So we are called to work out our salvation. We're called to reverentially work out our salvation. And then finally, we are empowered by God so that we may be able to work out our salvation. We cannot work out our salvation apart from him. About probably two months ago, I was at the office next door and um, been a long week. I'd gotten up early every day that week and it was around one o'clock on a Thursday and I'd just eaten lunch and I was, I was crashing. And um, 
wanted some coffee, so I went to the coffee pot to make coffee next door. It's a $15 cheap Walmart coffee pot. Put ground, put the filter in, put grounds in, put water in, turned it on, and just stood there waiting with this glazed-over look in my eyes, just waiting on the coffee to get ready. I waited about two minutes, and nothing happened. So I thought, man, this $15 pot's broken. So I waited a couple more minutes, nothing happened. I started pushing buttons, started pulling, you know, just doing whatever I could to try and get it going. Set my cup down, I was about to walk away, going to, you know, go get another coffee pot. Or and I looked behind there and realized it just wasn't plugged in. Just needed to be plugged in. You know, for five minutes I stood there, missed the most obvious thing. It's not plugged in. There's no power there. And I think that's a good example. Listen, the coffee pot had everything it needed to do what it had been made to do, but it wasn't plugged in. Spiritually speaking, we're the same way. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, God's given us everything we need to grow. We've got to be plugged into him. We've got to allow him to work in us and through us. Are you plugged into the power source this morning? Are you allowing God to work in you and through you? Have you ever met a Christian who's trying to do, to do it on his own? It's a miserable person because you can't. I mean, you can't. The Bible's true, you can't. It says here, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, but you've got to let God do it. Got to yield yourself to him. God's desire is to actively work in our lives and to give us his power to live for him and to turn away from sin. I'm going to read you some verses here. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read them to you. It says, seeing that his divine power has, listen to this, has granted us everything, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing increasing how do they increase as we grow to know him god changes us morally god changes us spiritually if these qualities are yours and they are increasing listen to this they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the lord jesus christ neither i mean god god will use you is what it's saying yield yourself to him grow in him and you won't be useless you'll be fruitful god will use you for his purposes doesn't matter who you are where you've been what you've done your past God will use you. God uses broken people. It's interesting. God didn't choose the greatest to reach the world. God chose the base and the lowly is what it says. God uses both. He uses both. Jerry Bridges says it this way. This is great. He says, God works as we work, and we are able to work because he is at work in us. He works as we work, And we are able to work because he is at work in us. Apostle Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Listen to this. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says, I labored hard. But even in that labor, it was the grace of God working in me and through me. What Paul did to to reach so many different people that have impacted the world is a yearly, he, he, he merely submitted himself to Christ and allowed God to work through him. So how do we work out our salvation? Just very practically, how do we do that? How do we grow in our relationship with Christ? And it's simple. Simple yet hard. 
is spiritual disciplines. We read the Bible. We read the Bible. We think about what we're, we meditate upon the Word of God. We, as you read in the morning, you try and take some thoughts from it, some verses, and you live them out throughout the day. You meditate on them. You think through them. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, I encourage you to get one. I think we have some uh, hard copies in the, in the foyers out here. If not, you can get them off the Internet. You can get them on your phone. But I encourage you in that. We read our Bible. We pray. Communicate with God. Listen, God wants us to pray. He's not too busy for us. He's not. I mean, God says, cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. We don't have a God that's distant. We have a God who's near, a God who desires to hear our burdens. Fellowship. We come to a fellowship like this, and we're encouraged. We're lifted up by our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're held accountable. If you're struggling in an area of your life, you're struggling with, with a sin in your life, go find someone and say, I need you to call me the next few days. I need you to call me the next few months. I need you to hold me accountable in this situation. Church is here to help. We're, we're fellowship. We read our Bible, we pray, we fellowship, we obey. We don't just become a, a effectual hearers. We don't just become hearers of the word. We come do, become doers of the word. If you read the Bible, but then don't do it. But if you read the Bible and do it, God will use you. God will use you for his glory and for his honor. We yield ourselves to God. We allow his power to work in us. And we allow his power to work through us. I'm going to tell you real quickly a couple stories about it. Uh, really, they're two completely different stories. They're, one ending is great. One ending is pretty tragic. Um, two friends of mine that we, that we met in Uganda. One of them is named uh, Pastor Joseph. Worked with him for two years, 2007 to 2009. Great guy, loved him. I mean, he, he just seemed to be a legitimate just follower of Christ, loved God. Joseph uh, had a lot of people pour into him. He poured into people. He told a lot of people about Christ. He was the head of an organization that distributed food to the poorest of the poor. And when I left in 2009, he was doing really well. I mean, just I had conversations with him. You could just sense that he, that he loved God. He walked with him. Found out this year, a few months ago, that Joseph was caught recently stealing large amounts of money from this ministry. And, uh, I mean, this is taking food out of the mouths of children who are impoverished. Some of the other pastors tried to confront him, and he dropped off the face there. Changed his phone numbers, changed his social media, moved. A couple of them have found him and talked to him, and they said he is just, won't listen to counsel. And I believe Joseph's a believer. I really do. I don't know that. I think he's a follower of Christ. And I guarantee you if he is, right now, in Kampala, Uganda, right now, there's a former pastor who's miserable in his sin. Miserable in his sin. There was a point with Joseph where he became a hearer of the word and not a doer. He quit yielding himself to Christ. I'll tell you another story of a man by the name of Emmanuel in Dolima. Emmanuel is a, he's from Rwanda. I met him at the Uganda Baptist Seminary and didn't know this till just a few months back, his story. He's from Rwanda, and in the mid-90s, he was part of the genocide in Rwanda. He was from the wrong tribe. Saw his family murdered, and as an early teen, he managed to escape somehow after he had seen his family die. And Emmanuel made his way to Congo. And if things couldn't get any worse, he was captured by Congolese rebels, became a slave as a teenager. 
through a long, and I can't tell you all the details because they really are gruesome and it's just not, it's not appropriate, but long story short, Emmanuel and some of his friends were in a long line and they were being held at gunpoint and Emmanuel just decided to run. And he ran and he was the only one that survived. Um, hid. Somehow or another made his way to Uganda. In Uganda, he was a street boy, lived on the street, had nothing, no family. His family was gone, no food, no money. Someone met him and shared Christ with him, and he got saved, mentored, helped. And he said, I'm going to go back and reach my country. So he was trained, and now he is the National uh, Baptist Director in Rwanda, reaching many people, doing an awesome. And if you saw him, you would never in a million years know what had happened in his past. So much joy on his face. God's grace is amazing to him. When I talk to him, I still have the opportunity occasionally to chat with him on, online. And Emmanuel is full of the Lord. Loves God, spends time in the Word, submits himself, and God is using him in awesome ways. Are you yielded to Christ this morning? I don't know about you, but I want to be like Emmanuel. I don't want to be like the other guy. I want to be like Emmanuel. And I hope you do too. Let's bow our heads this morning. If your head's bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you a couple questions this morning. Number one, first of all, do you know Christ? Has there been a point in time in your life where you said, Lord, I, Lord, I recognize my sin and I need help. I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And I trust that only you can pay my debt. Do you know Christ? Have you been forgiven? Have you been saved? If not, this is a great time to come down front. We've got people who would love to talk with you. And they'd open the Bible and they would tell you how to be saved from the Word of God. But my second question, this was kind of the thrust this morning, is this. If you are a believer this morning, are you working out your salvation daily? Maybe this morning you just need to commit afresh and anew to allowing Christ to grow you and make you more like himself.